Lord, what we have sung, we know your word reveals. We rejoice in it, we reflect upon it, we praise you for the centrality of Christ crucified and risen to our walk with you and to our every moment of every day. I pray for this assembly, and I ask that under the continuing ministry of the word here this morning, that you would deepen and ground us in the truth, in reality. I pray for those who know not Christ, that the word of saving grace in Jesus would be made evident, that you by your spirit would shine light upon blind eyes and bring life where there is death. We ask, Lord, that there would be a resurrection of spirit for those who know not Christ and for those who do, that we would rejoice to center our lives on what you have done to save us from our sin. May we realize the importance of what we consider here today. We pray your hand a blessing upon the word and that we call for the teaching of the Spirit of God for your presence among us as we journey together as a church. Through Christ we pray, amen. Bible-believing churches differ with one another on any number of beliefs and practices. We differ, for instance, on the true recipients of baptism. We disagree on issues of polity, how Jesus intends the local church to be governed. For instance, should church members police pastoral qualification or should a governing board outside of the church fulfill that role? We also find differing beliefs within local churches. Godly members of Bible-believing churches hold different views of the nature of the millennium, of the return of Christ. Church members differ in their understanding of tongues and prophecy, of unconditional election, eternal security, the role of men and women in the church, the role of government, how it, what it should play in the cause of Christ. And here's a glorious thought, believer. One day in eternity, Jesus will straighten all this out. What what joy that's going to be on the basis of what we know here in the negative. What joy that will be for the first time that all believers see as one. But for now, divergent beliefs simply reflect our humanity. And the fact that we have not personally sat at the feet of Jesus to hear his teaching, as did the apostles. But all that said, we do find unanimity of belief on the central doctrines of the faith. Truly born-again believers all believe and wholly trust in the good news of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Without the true gospel... No one is saved. With the true gospel, no one is lost. And so amidst our differences, some more critical than others, all true churches embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, our capacity to flourish in our walk with God as a local church hinges on how the gospel works what it is, 
how we got it, and thus how we then live our lives. We are helped to this end in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as the Apostle Paul counsels the spiritually compromised church at Corinth on this very issue. Now, while the application for them was considerably different than it will be for us, Paul's pastoral counsel provides vital ground on which we may build up Eden Baptist Church for God's glory and for our joy. It is vital that all of us come to an understanding and continue to deepen in our understanding of the implications of this gospel in our life together. And on this, we all stand together. So let's deepen in what we know. We learn from this passage, first of all, we need to know how the gospel works. Paul starts here in verse 1 of chapter 15, and we find the gospel, first of all, this is how it works, it must be proclaimed. Verse 15, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you. The gospel, the word means good news. As an official representative of the risen Christ, Paul traveled to Corinth to herald a piece of news. To announce the good news of what God had done to provide eternal salvation for his people. We notice the connection of this in Romans chapter 10 where Paul says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Notice here the proclamation, the importance of the proclamation. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching. Someone preaching the message that has not been heard is utterly vital for the salvation of the lost. So the gospel must be proclaimed. Secondly, the gospel must be heard to saving effect. Verse 1, continuing on, I proclaimed, I preached this good news to you, which you received. There's three ideas here. They received it, They stand in it, and verse 2, they are being saved by it. You received it. Reception is how the gospel works. We do not discover it. We do not invent it. The gospel is news that reaches us from outside of ourselves. It is news that we need to hear. It is news that we must comprehend and welcome with humble repentant, warm-hearted agreement. You received it. Fill in that word. It means all of this, this warm-hearted reception and understanding of that good news. And secondly, it's that gospel in which you stand. You received it in the original text as an aorist. It's in the aorist tense, which means it's something that happened in the past. But you stand in it is in the perfect tense, which means that it's something that stands with permanence in your life. It speaks of the permanent, ongoing effects of this stand. So here's how the gospel works. The news comes to us from outside. We receive it as so good that it becomes the foundation on which we build our lives. The gospel becomes the stabilizing truth base under our feet. And then there's that third element. 
and by which you are being saved, verse 2. This message saves the sinner from God's just judgment against us. It does so immediately at the moment of repentant faith. But the emphasis here is on, you notice, it's, it's ongoing power to save. The gospel continues to save us, to purify us, to fit us for eternity. Until, ultimately, we are saved forever. Notice this power in the gospel, Romans 1.16. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this good news, for it is the power of God. This news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what we must understand, what I believe we do as a church, is that the true reception of the gospel includes more than intellectual assent. Received, stand, being saved. Received. A true reception of the gospel means that you stake your eternal soul on it. To stand. A true reception means you construct your life on a gospel foundation. You see all of life through that message. And being saved, a true reception of the gospel reveals spiritual fruit. Evidences that Jesus is progressively saving you from sin. This we must grasp. Jesus has never saved a single soul so that he or she goes on living in sin and spurning God. Never once. Christ justifies the believer with the decided purpose of transforming the believer. When his salvation work has begun, it continues to work. This is what it is at its very heart, at its very core. Notice this in Titus chapter 2 as Paul writes to Titus, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We look to his coming. To Jesus, of Jesus he says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I ask the question, does this have in view what Christ has done for heaven? That he has he's redeemed us from lawlessness, he's purifying himself for himself a people zealous for good works, and all of that's in heaven. I think we would very naturally read this to be, that's not later, that's now. He's delivering us from lawlessness, and he is purifying for himself a people who are busy about the work of the kingdom now. And we notice that simple word, too. He gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify for himself a people. This is the intention of Christ's saving work, to rescue us progressively now. And that's the coming back to the uh, first verse here, that, uh, or verse 2, of being saved. 
Now, all of that, the reception, the standing on the foundation, and the continuing on in belief and sanctification, there's a qualifier to all of this, he says, verse 2, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. That's a really important if unless. And we dare not dismiss it. Positively, we must hold fast to the good word of salvation in Christ. We must not give in to doubt. We must not grow tired of it. We must not embrace contrary views. We must hold to it. Those who carry footballs are taught to hold it high and tight. You get the ball down lower, and you get loose with it, and the opponent is likely to knock it loose, and that's called a turnover, and that's not a good thing. You have to keep the ball, hold it high and tight. Or to use a different picture, we must hold on to the gospel like one clings to a life raft when barreling through a torrential run of river rapids. Hold on. Now, that's not to say that our holding on to salvation is how we keep ourselves saved. But it is to say, never let go of this truth. Hold to it at all costs. Negatively, we may believe in vain. And I wonder, in in your own mind and heart, do you have a category for this? There are some Christians that don't. They they really don't think in these terms that there is such a thing as vain belief. Empty, ineffectual faith in Christ that does not save. One can actually have the kind of faith in Christ that turns out to be of no value and it will only fuel our eternal judgment, not save us. Wow, I mean, that's concerning. So how do I know my faith is real and is not vain, not empty or useless? Well, we have it right here, don't we? The opposite of believing in vain is to receive the gospel warmly, to stand in it, to found your life upon it, and to be continually sanctified and purified in your walk with Christ. Saving faith is final, Never something God gives on the basis of grace alone and then takes away on the basis of our poor performance. That's not the case. And yet, empty faith in Christ is a real thing. It's something we want to avoid at all costs. We see evidences of this, for instance, in John chapter 8. Amazing passage. Jesus, in verse 31, addresses, and I quote, those who believe in him. That's who he's talking to in John 8. Those who believe in him. You know what those people are doing at the end of John 8? Picking up stones to kill him. Those who believed in him believed with vain, empty faith. They had a knowledge of who Christ is. They had some belief that he was who he said he was, and they ultimately rejected him. We see this put so pointedly by Christ in Matthew 7. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You tie that to verse 2, the being saved. 
the fruits of salvation will be evident. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Connect to Titus to redeem us from lawlessness. Here are people who say, Lord, to Jesus, who have not been delivered from their lawlessness, even though they think they have been. The most tragic possibility of our life together as a local church is right here. That someone would believe in vain. That you would enter into eternity and say, Lord, Lord, and he would say, I don't know you. You are not mine. By the grace and power of God, do not let this be you. Now, you might hear a contradiction there. You might think of it as a contradiction. Wait a minute. The, by the grace and power of God, I'm not to let it be me. I'm to hold on to the football. What is it? Is it the work of God or is it what I do in my own strength? Only God can save you. And only God can keep you saved. But he does so concurrently with our active trust in the gospel and faithful obedience to him. It is a both and. Our works do not save us, and our works do not keep us saved. But where we have saving faith, it will guide us into obedience and fidelity to Christ. It can lead no other way. So are you truly united to Christ? Is your faith in the saving power of the gospel the real thing? This could be a moment of conviction for you, where, and I would just encourage you, do not let pride stop you. Repent of your sin right now and call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Do not delay. Today is the day of salvation. But there are others among us where the challenge is, is not so much the conviction as fear. I, I, I'm just not certain. I just don't know. It scares me to think about that. I don't think that's where we should reside either. We can know that we have eternal life, 1 John 5, 13. And the assurance of that is a very vital part of our walk with Christ. So if you find yourself in that spot of fear, let me encourage you, it's not you that's at issue. Ultimately, it's what Christ has done. Look to him. What happens there are those who are very fearful of their salvation and never really certain and confident in it is that the tendency is to look inward and to be asked all, begin to ask all sorts of questions about my performance and who I am, and how do I feel, and the like. Look to Christ. Salvation is in Him. He earned it on the cross. 
We cannot do it ourselves. So fixate on Christ and the assurance will grow. And obviously pointing back to what we've considered. Have I received it? Do I stand on it? Am I being sanctified by it? And look to Christ. Well, on that point, we move then secondly that we must to this point that we must know what the gospel is. We must know how it, the gospel works. It is proclaimed. It is received. It is sanctifying. We must know what the gospel is. It is, first of all, Christ crucified, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried. I delivered to you, that is, God gave the Apostle Paul news to proclaim to the Corinthians, and this news was of first importance. That is, it is a central message of salvation. I declared that central message that I had received. Paul's a receiver as well. He, he's as much a recipient of the message as they are. And the message is that Christ died for our sins. That is, the second person of the triune God, the eternally preceding Son of God, took on flesh. He did so that he might fulfill the sacrificial law by becoming the perfect, sinless substitute in the place of the sinner. On the cross, the God-man paid the penalty of sin for his people, dying as the Lamb of God in their place. In accordance with the Scriptures. What's the importance of that? I think, first of all, I think it's talking about the entire Old Testament. Could be epitomized in, for instance, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. But he speaks of the whole Old Testament pointing in this direction. But what we also find here is that according to the Scriptures, that this is God's plan, it is His intention, it is His way of salvation. And Christ was buried. This is the proof of Jesus' death. Jesus was not mostly dead. He was dead dead. In keeping with his human nature, Jesus died and his lifeless corpse was entombed. And by the way, I say those things because there's all kinds of people who say those things. He was sort of dead and the like. Or he wasn't dead. He was mistaken for someone else or the like. Jesus was dead. You don't run around the ancient world and pin an execution on a Roman governor. You don't live to tell about that. And you don't run around the ancient world telling about the news that a Roman governor failed to execute a capital offense. No one ever did that. He died. And he was buried. Proof. His corpse was entombed. That is element one of the good news. Jesus died, historical fact, to provide forgiveness of sin, theological truth. And there's where according to the scriptures comes in. Helping us know what God meant by the death of Christ. What that death means. Second element of the gospel. What is it? Christ is risen. Verse 4 again. 
that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul, this is element one, death, proven by burial. Element two, resurrection, proven by these witnesses. Paul does not mention all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. There are a number more But he mentions these representative examples, these examples including James, who we believe to be his half-brother, who very soon became a pillar in the Jerusalem church. Jesus also appeared individually to Peter, who had so horrifyingly betrayed him. But he also appeared to 500 at one time. There's no such thing medically or historically as mass hallucination. 500 were able to visually see him. They were close enough for that. But there was a large enough group to assure that this was not mass hallucination. And among those 500 plus witnesses, some have fallen asleep. That's a figure of speech that nicely points to the resurrection of the body, a theme that Paul will begin to develop soon here in this chapter. But in verse 8, he refers to his own eyewitness account of the risen Christ, Acts chapter 9, and Christ teaching him in the Arabian desert. So in this sense, Paul was untimely born. There's a lot to that phrase that we'll not get into here, but he was an official eyewitness of the risen Christ. However, his experience came after all the other apostles. So in that sense, he's untimely born. There may be um, a a negative reference there to him from the Corinthians. We don't know for certain what's all behind that, that word. But when Jesus ascended to glory in Acts 1, and the apostles who witnessed his resurrection saw him ascend into glory, where was Saul of Tarsus? He was working to figure out how to crush the church. So it's later that Christ appears visibly to him. And so he speaks of himself in that line of witnesses. Now that leads very naturally in verse 9 and following to this third element. We must know how the gospel works. We must know what the gospel is. And we must acknowledge on whom the gospel relies. That is, in its witness. So, verse 9, this leads now to Paul speaking of his apostolic authority. And this is critical to our understanding of the gospel. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. No one was worthy to serve as Christ's official representative, of course. That's not what he's saying. But Paul humbly owns his former treachery as a persecutor of the church. Verse 10, but the grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's not who I am now. I am now what? Now I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm one of those eyewitnesses of his resurrection. 
That is who I am now. The Corinthians struggled with Paul's position, with his authority, with his teaching, but Paul had the truth, and he knows that their eternal future rests on them receiving that truth. He knows that the message of Christ crucified and risen requires apostolic authority. Those that Christ tapped to be his apostolic witness He's one of those witnesses, and they need to get on the page. So humbly he starts. This is not me exalting myself. I persecuted the church. I was the worst of sinners. I didn't only reject Jesus. I sought to kill people who received him. So I've got nothing in this that comes from me, but I am what I am now by the grace of God. His grace toward me was not in vain, Isn't that a beautiful turn of phrase? It was not in vain, connecting to verse 2, unless you've believed in vain. I've not believed in vain. His grace was not in vain. Rather, verse 10, continuing on, to the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In our Western thinking, we can hear that phrase, I worked harder than them all. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, was, I really gave them all my all. I'm a lot better than the rest of them because of how hard I've worked. I don't think that's at all what he's saying. What he's looking at is not his work ethic, but God's grace. God's grace is poured out on a believer, and that believer then gets busy in serving God. It's doubtful Paul means then to compare himself unfavorably, but rather they're struggling to accept his apostolic authority, and he is saying, by the grace of God, he has used me to spread his gospel through many nations. I worked harder than them all by the calling and grace and positioning of God. God's grace was so prevalent in Paul's life, he now operated at the very center of the apostolic band, laboring to exhaustion. And this is this problem is not going to, I mean, he's really trying to graciously solve this issue of their rejecting his apostolic authority, but we get to 2 Corinthians and he devotes chapters 10 through 13 to the issue. This is really important. To us, It's more important than we grasp because we have nothing against Paul like they did. It is utterly vital that we grasp this connection. That all of this is with apostolic authority. Now, let me just stop here for a few moments and kind of go off on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's a good place to bring it out. He says, I worked harder than them all. God used me and called me to be at the core and the heart of the mission of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. There's a tired complaint among some Christians That belief in predestination and unconditional election squelches the fires of evangelism. Where, I would ask two questions. One, where do we go in the New Testament to establish the doctrines of unconditional election and predestination? I mean, you don't go to anybody before you go to the Apostle Paul. He spoke most robustly about these doctrines. Secondly, did Paul's doctrine 
kill evangelistic zeal? Where do we go to see the pattern of missionary zeal? We go to the Apostle Paul. No servant of Christ in the history of the church ever went to greater lengths to proclaim the gospel to lost souls than Paul. The doctrines of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation never crushes evangelistic zeal. It never has. Evangelistic zeal is crushed by hard hearts, by the fear of man, by selfishness, never by doctrines of grace. Well, back to the point. The gospel Paul preached was the gospel that brought salvation to the Corinthians. And we see what he did to labor to bring that message to them. That God has his elect and I brought the message so that there would be a response to that. But what we must grasp as we put ourselves in our situation thinking about what this means to us is this. Only the message of the apostolic band is the true gospel that saves souls. And we have people lined up from that day to this who continue to step in and say, I will tell you what the gospel is. I will refashion it to our day and to our time. And indeed, if we don't refashion it, it's going to die. Forget it all. The apostles are those chosen by Christ, discipled by Christ, eyewitnesses of his resurrection. It is their witness alone that can give to us the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we hold to that one true apostolic faith and to no other updates to it. Christ crucified, Christ risen, the historical realities coupled with the theological meaning. On this we stand. And so did they, in some sense. Verse 11, Paul says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I'm preaching what the apostles preach. I am one of those apostles. This is the message that you believed to saving faith. It was utterly essential that they learned to base their belief and church practices on the gospel. And their belief in Christ crucified and risen was the central hub of that message. The message that saved them. Paul preached this gospel to them. They were saved by it. This authenticates his apostolic authority. Their trust in the gospel bore witness to Paul's apostolic credentials. And their trust in the gospel was real. We'll get into this more, Lord willing, beginning next week as to what is really going on here with them and the like. But let's just start with next week now and say, were they saved? Do you look at the Corinthian church and say, these are true believers in Christ? Paul did. He speaks of them as sanctified in Christ Jesus in chapter 1 and verse 2 as holy ones, that God will, I quote, sustain you to the end, guiltless into the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8 of chapter 1. Here in 15 and verse 2, they are, they are those who are being saved by the gospel. And here in verse 11, so you believed. Now, belief 
can be vain and empty and false, and he's calling them to consider this. Maybe you've believed in vain, but he looks to their testimony and he says, you are truly born again believers in Christ, so act like it. Live like it. Again, we'll return to this matter later, but Suffice it to say that as saved people, they were failing to synchronize their lives with the full implications of Jesus crucified and risen. In Eden Baptist Church, nothing else matters in comparison with this central message of Jesus crucified and risen. Our health as an assembly will not be determined by perfect agreement on every nuance of doctrine. Our health and spiritual prosperity will not rest in absolute agreement on every aspect of the Christian life and how it should be lived. We want to keep working toward unity in these matters, of course. But we are going to go nowhere as an assembly. We will languish as an assembly if we do not agree on the apostolic gospel. If we do not defend it, develop it, teach it, Love it and sing it. We will not flourish as a church if we fail to ground our life together in the good news of Jesus crucified and risen for the salvation of his people. As is so clearly evidenced in this chapter, it will be, we will develop it much more later. The gospel is not a pill that we give to the lost that brings them to life and is never needed again. No, we root our very lives in this truth. We stand on this truth, and this truth of salvation in Jesus continues to be our salvation. It's not a pill for one-time event. This message, this central piece of news is of first importance to our life together as an assembly and to our private walk with the Lord. The gospel is why then this church teaches the Bible. It is why we preach obedience to its precepts. At the core of that teaching is this gospel. The gospel is why we so carefully onboard new members and strive to disciple new believers. Do they, have they truly received this message? The gospel is why we counsel from Scripture and exercise church discipline. If a person is living a life that is incompatible with the gospel... Love warns them through counsel, and then, if necessary, through the collective voice of the people of God. It warns, it directs, and it welcomes back through the avenue of repentance. The gospel of Jesus Christ is why we sing for joy to the Lord in assembly. The gospel is why we baptize believers and gather for communion at the Lord's table. The gospel is why we rejoice in the midst of our trials and heartaches and difficulties. And the good news of Jesus Christ that has reached us by God's grace is the message then that we labor to proclaim worldwide through financial support, strategic efforts, prayers, and indeed through the witness here in our communities. 
The gospel is at the heart of everything Eden Baptist Church is and does and will ever be by the grace of God alone. May this be synchronized with your own personal walk. I am a gospel man. I am a gospel woman. This is our creed. How rich we are in union with Christ who died to pay the penalty of the sins of his people and rose again that we may one day do the same. By grace alone. By Christ's work alone. Let's pray. Lord, as some here are able to gather in smaller groups today to consider the implications of this passage, I pray your blessing on those gatherings. I pray that as we leave here today, that words of rejoicing and thanksgiving and contemplation and meditation will be spoken. I pray that prayers would be lifted of thanksgiving to you for what you have done to give us life in Jesus' name. The wonder of this message. We know that we'll spend the rest of eternity seeking to plumb its depths. But it's an infinite well. And I ask that here and now in this place with all of our weaknesses and incapacities to discern that you would allow us as an assembly to put down a deep, stake here that we'd hold the ball high and tight that we'd cling to the raft of the gospel not because it depends upon us but because we actively in faith put our trust and our confidence in Christ crucified and risen draw to saving faith anyone who has vain belief we plead to that end today and we pray that for those of us who are clinging to that truth that we'd rest in it. Not a white-knuckled hold to the ball or the raft. Ultimately, an absolute and confident trust in Christ crucified and risen. Deepen this faith in us now, we pray, through Jesus. Amen.